The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome once again to the Spirit Matters podcast, where we host conversations with a diverse range of uh, experts, teachers, scholars, scientists, and others who can uh, help inform your own spiritual path. Um, If you're tuning in for the first time, I invite you to go to the uh, previous interviews listed under this one, Uh, By now, we've had about a year's worth of interviews on this iteration, uh, and you'll find a lot of interesting people there. And if you're familiar with the previous version of Spirit Matters that I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for seven years, that archive still exists as well, and it's at spiritmatterstalk.com. Today's guest is David Rossmarin, a uh, board-certified clinical psychologist and peer-reviewed scholar, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and a leading expert and innovator in the treatment of anxiety. In fact, he founded the Center for Anxiety, which has facilities in New York and Boston areas, And he's the author of a new book, which we'll talk about, called Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. And if you're wondering why a psychologist who specializes in anxiety is on Spirit Matters, (laughs) it's because, one, spiritual people are not entirely immune to anxiety, and it's um, relevant to our our subject matter here, and also because he is the director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. So he's on the intersection of spirituality and psychology, which is an important location to be. 
Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Really excited to have this conversation. Very good. Thank you so much. Um, we always begin here by asking our guests to give us their own sort of spiritual origin story. So um, tell us about your own spiritual background and what brought you to the work you do at this intersection of psychology and spirituality. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll focus on the spirituality and mental health aspect of it, in fact, because that's kind of where I, where I do my work. So uh, I'm from the Orthodox Jewish tradition, and uh, when I um, started doing my clinical training in psychology, patients would come up to me routinely and want to speak to me about God. They would want to speak to me about their faith. They would want to speak to me about why they're being punished and uh, all sorts of other questions that were really beyond my pay grade as a clinician. But uh, here I am, you know, walking around the clinical units wearing a, wearing a yarmulke on my head and, and sort of attracting this, <laughs> this subset of patients who want to discuss their faith. And, and uh, you know, at some point I said, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, in psychiatry, in psychology, in modern mental health, we ignore this domain to the point that patients are really pining to have discussions about spiritual matters and they're going to they're going to attach to anything <laughs> that looks like anyone who seems like they might be willing to have a conversation about it and that's not really the best way to go about these things so you know from there i really started doing systematic research at mclean hospital and within the harvard medical school um, on mental health and spirituality. And, uh, you know, we found that, you know, I, I was not alone in having faith. And these individual patients who would come over to me are also not alone. In fact, incredibly, in Eastern Massachusetts, more than 60% of our patients wanted to have spirituality as a part of their discussion. You, you actually have data on that. Yes, 59.8% um, of our patients, I will tell you exactly. If you really rounded want, it off to 60. Rounding it off to 60. <laughs> and, and, and furthermore, 40% of those individuals have no faith system. They're not affiliated with a religious tradition. But nevertheless, spirituality is still relevant to the, to the people who we, we call nuns. And I don't mean N-U-N. Yeah. I yeah. mean, N-O-N-E's, the nuns. Right. So, so this is an area of clinical uh, research that I've been doing now for, oh, I don't know, probably 20 years uh, longer. Um, and uh, it's really been a personal journey. You know, I've really seen that I'm um, the importance of the subject personally um, and clinically to hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the years. Um, and it's uh, it's quite remarkable to me yeah. um, how central this is to many people. Two questions come to mind um, that are not on my list of questions. Um, one, um, I know because I've done a lot of research on the history of spirituality in America, that um, what you discovered would have been, um, or I should say, the reaction to your insight that spirituality matters to people in a mental health context would have not been as well received 40 or 50 years ago. Definitely. In by your colleagues. But a lot has changed, you know, in since then. Um but back in, in the 60s when um 
when Abraham Maslow was beating that drum, he was a, a lone voice. But I'm 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 assuming my first question uh, that there's much more openness to the importance of this area of people's lives than there used to be. And my second question, you could take them whichever order. How has this 20 years of looking at this affected your own spiritual life? Yes, great questions. Um, firstly, you're 100% right. You know, for uh, the the origins of spirit of uh, of psychiatry going back to Freud. I mean, he he lambasted spiritual yeah. beliefs of and religious beliefs of any sort. He thought it was. You know, beneath human dignity, believe in any to believe in anything greater, to believe in anything metaphysical or anything um, immaterial, even. And uh, his he was not he was unabashed in his criticism for any faith tradition, let alone his own his own Jewish faith. Um, other individuals, Albert Ellis, he wrote a, he wrote a book called The Case Against Religiosity. It's really more of a pamphlet. Um, incidentally, Ellis actually recanted his positions on the yeah. matter, and he recognized later in his life that spirituality can be positive as well as negative. So at least there was some movement. But along those lines, many of my mentors, Dr. Harold Koenig, who's at Duke University, has been doing this work for 50 years. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Pargament at Bowling Green State University, he was my direct mentor in graduate school. He's been, also been doing this work 40 years easily. Yeah, they couldn't publish in mainstream journals. They were subjected to far more harsh and, and, and challenging peer review. Um, they, uh, but quietly and slowly and with a lot of patience, a lot of faith, I would add, <laughs> you know, people like them and, and others have really paved the way today. Listen, I, I'm not going to tell you it's as accepted as any other topic. I've definitely had four uh, more, far more rejections of my papers at the editor's desk. I don't mean peer review. Like it's, you know, it's one thing if my paper gets sent out for peer review and then their comments are substantive on the paper and it gets rejected, I can accept that. You know, that's part of the job. But when an editor says, no, I don't want to publish on this topic, mm -hmm. well, that's a bias. And that's something that's hard for me. It does happen to me more than my colleagues, given my area. <laughs> but it also, at the same time, you know, I have published in many mainstream um, uh, uh, psychiatry journals, psychology journals. Um, and uh, my colleagues seem more open to it. So yes, to your point, it is a different game uh, today than it was. Um, it's still not where it should be or needs to be. Um, as for my own faith, there's been nothing greater in some ways to develop my own faith because I simply recognized I have a message. I have to study this. I'm being a scientist about it. I'm not, I, I write about the negative side of spirituality as well as positive, right? It's not like I have an ax to grind or a mission, you know, I'm not... I'm not trying to showcase that it's all positive. And, you know, I've seen what seems to be, you know, I don't know if we want to call it miraculous, you know, but uh, some pretty incredible things like being desk rejected nine times and then ending up with a paper in one of the top tier psychology journals ever that ends up ultimately, you know, trending in the front in the front section of the New York Times. Like, mm. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff is pretty cool and definitely has enhanced my faith that if you have, if you want to stick to things and you, you know, just because there's adversity doesn't mean you can't overcome it. And when you stick to your perceived mission and purpose in life, there are amazing things that can ultimately unfold. Great. And now you mentioned Kenneth Pargament. Now, I actually had written a question uh, when I was preparing for this. Uh, and then I read that he had been your mentor. Now, yeah. I 
discovered some research he did. I don't know when he did the research, but I read it 20, 25 years ago. Um, there's been a lot of, or there had been at that time already, um, a good deal of research about religious participation, church attendance, things like that, and uh, outcomes in physical health. Yep. He had the insight, as I recall, to say, well, let's separate out uh, different kinds of spiritual or religious involvement. And he talked about positive religious uh, coping, as I think was the term, and Correct. negative. And negative religious coping. And, right. and I, I thought that was a tremendously insightful thing, and the data backed that up. Can you tell us about that? And sure. Because it probably applies to mental health as well as physical. Yeah, it absolutely does. I'm actually just looking on my shelf at The Psychology of Religion and Coping, Ken's uh, first and very formative book. I believe it was 1997 that he wrote it. Mm. So it's uh, way back. But he's done incredible research on religious coping. And many of his students, myself included, in fact, have done subsequent research within psychiatric populations, within people going through cancer diagnoses and in different religious faiths, traditions, the Jewish faith, Hindu faith, you know, Muslim, you know, all over, and also for the general population as well. It, it, one thing that's very clear about the religious coping literature is that spirituality and religion are not uniformly positive, nor are they negative. And sometimes, in many cases, even for the same person, many cases, the same person uses spirituality and religion in positive ways. It gives them hope. It gives them solace. It gives them a sense of connection. It gives them a grounding. It sends it, 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 it orients them to a set of values or a set of guiding principles in their life as you were saying when you introduced this podcast. And at the same time, it can also be a source of struggle, one that calls into question, why is this happening to me? Why do these terrible events occur? Why am I continuing to struggle? Am I destined to struggle forever? Can I overcome these barriers in my life? Am I being punished? Am God? I being punished? Why did these religious people do something terrible to me? They're supposed to be good people. You know, these <laughs> are normal struggles that people who have a faith system, even if it gives them those positive connection, can and often do struggle with. And they differentiate between the way that people function in a mental health way. Obviously, the positive being a beneficial effect on depression, on anxiety, on functional, uh, you know, people's functioning. And the, and the negative coping, obviously, exacerbating and creating um, um, potentially creating uh, emotional distress. So that's kind of a summary. When you have a patient um, who you see is um, having those negative uh, coping mechanisms or uh, experiences through uh, religion or spirituality, um, how do you approach it? Great. That is exactly the work that I like to do because... Oh. A lot of the science of spirituality and mental health has left open the question, well, now what? You know, how do we actually speak to patients of different faith traditions? Also, the clinicians have different faith traditions, right? It might be different for me to have a conversation versus someone who has no faith at all, for, you know, and someone who has no training in this subject. So that's where clinical innovation comes in. And that's where I've sort of 
my really niche area within the Harvard Medical School and McLean Hospital has been what we call clinical innovation, which is developing clinical protocols, guided questions, guided support uh, documents, for example, uh, handouts that are given to patients to guide these conversations in a way that's clinically beneficial to mm. the patients. So to your question about spiritual struggles, the, the most important thing when a patient has spiritual struggles is simply to get them, give them an opportunity to speak about the matter. Mm. Almost always, patients who have spiritual struggles have not spoken about it with anyone because they haven't talked to their clinical teams because they haven't asked about spiritual matters and they haven't spoken to their faith leaders because they don't want to talk about the negative side of things. <laughs> it's embarrassing. They're struggling. That The faith leader might be the reason that they're struggling right. <laughs> because of right. something that they said or something that they did. So these are complicated issues that people often harness, har uh, har um, often hold in, in the depths of their hearts, in the depths of their psyche and don't let out without speaking to anyone. So simply providing that, you know, Carl, Roger, Carl Rogers-esque opportunity for people to simply speak and hear themselves and talk about it with a re using reflective listening it's it's really a, an amazing gift that you can do to patients and it's it's a skill that that clinicians need to learn how to do interesting um but as you said it, it would seem to matter who, to whom they're speaking I mean, if they're speaking to you as somebody who will take their spiritual life seriously and not just as a, a sort of um, extraneous or aspect of someone's life, like a lot of cynical people would, like I would have 50 years ago, you know, when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, because I read Freud and I read The Future of, of an Illusion and, you know, yep. would have been in that camp. Um, and so there would be a big difference listening to uh, or speaking to somebody with a sympathetic ear than somebody who, you know, might, uh, you know, pathologize their spiritual uh, involvement. Isn't that that's, true? That's certainly the case. But and I'm glad you you uh, sort of brought me back to that point. In our data, though, something very interesting happened. What we found was that religious clinicians providing spiritually integrated care they still get positive effects, but not nearly as much as non-religious clinicians providing. Oh, interesting. Isn't that great? Why? And the re Well, there's a couple of reasons why non-religious clinicians who are able to look beyond their own personal perspectives and actually validate the spiritual view of a patient, they tend to be more what we call dialectical. They're able to hold in mind the inherent uh, paradox between change and acceptance. There's this paradox when you treat, especially in acute psychiatry, we have to ex help our patients to accept where they are right now and also to move towards change. And the more one accepts, the better they're able to go to change because they're not resisting against what they can't change. So they're able to actually move forward. And this dialect or what we call dialectical behavior therapy, which has informed this, um, the non-religious clinicians who provide spiritually integrated care tend to be better able and and tend to use more DBT or dialectical behavior therapy in their approach, which makes sense. They're they're sort of a, a, an interestingly openly open-minded uh, group, a, a very special group of people. Interesting. Um, now, when somebody uh, 
you're at McLean's, one of the foremost psychiatric hospitals or mental, I don't know what the proper term is yeah, these days. psychiatric hospital. Um, and um, you have a great variety of patients, no doubt. Um, and they see you and, and you're assigned to them or however that works. Um, and they see you wearing a yarmulke. Yes. And um, they're Christian or Muslim or whatever. Um, or no faith at all. Sure. Or, yeah. Um, do they respond to you in a way that's different from if you weren't wearing a yarmulke or, and your name was unidentifiable? Sure. I don't know. I mean, I haven't tested that out. <laughs> I haven't I haven't done like a, you know, what we call an ABAB design where you start do, take something on, take it off, you know, take it on, take it off and see if there's a difference. <laughs> you know, at, at the same time, though, you know, I've never uh, it's never become an impasse or an issue. Actually, that's not true. Once it did. Once mm. it did become an issue with a I'll tell you what happened. There was an, a, a patient who came who was. Uh, ostensibly secular, but she came from an Orthodox Jewish background, mm. and she had experienced she had experienced some very significant sexual abuse. Oh, and when she saw me walk into the room as a group leader, she really had a very strong countertransference or transference, I should say, reaction to to my religious identity. And it became an issue, um, which we did navigate, albeit with some uh, some um, some complexity. But that was the only time ever that that I can recall that it actually became an issue in supervision. Um, and we're talking about seeing literally thousands of patients in multiple states. Um, so I, uh, I I I think today there is a more open, tolerant religious zeitgeist just within medicine in general and within clinical settings. So that that's probably accounts for some of it. And as you said it, earlier on, uh, they would, even a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever, would see you and they would know you'd be sympathetic to their spiritual... Uh, I've certainly had concerns. that too. I've had Catholic patients who say, I want to speak to you because you'll understand my faith. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is... You know, somewhat ironic, but also true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let us come on to the uh, topic of anxiety, which is um, sure. how I discovered you when your publicist sent me a, a pitch to have you on. And my first reaction was, well, this is a show about spirituality, but she... Uh, she uh, assured me that you're a good match and it turned out to be true. Um, what got you interested as a clinician in anxiety as uh, a focal point of your work? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly. Um, you know, one of the uh, most amazing things about anxiety is that the more you fight against it, the worse it becomes. Mm. And the more you see anxiety as something which we need to get rid of, the more your initial reaction to the experience of anxiety, which we all have, let's accept that, is actually going to be one of adrenaline. It's going to be a fight or flight response. So physiologically, the perception of anxiety as a disease literally leads into the anxiety epidemic that we are seeing today. And I believe that from a faith perspective, a broad faith perspective, even a spiritual, a broad spiritual perspective, 
human beings are not meant to be happy, have equanimity 100% of the time. We, we are going to struggle. All people do. How many people have you met in the last month who have no anxiety? Right? Very few. Mm -hmm. And if they have literally have no anxiety, something's probably wrong. Right. That that makes me nervous when someone says that they have no anxiety. That's cause for concern. And I, let me stop you there for a moment. Sure. Um, I it, when you asked that question, how many people uh, I, in the last month would not have anxiety? My first reaction was it depends on what you mean by anxiety. And and so that leads to the question of a terminology, you know, is and where anxiety, uh, which we has a negative connotation for most of us, which is part of your message, that it you know it it ought not have that negative connotation. But my first thought would be, well, I know a lot of people who are have deep concerns and are worried about certain things and yep. maybe a little afraid of you know what's going on in the world and yep. whatever. But I don't know if that qualifies as anxiety. So how do we separate those? Well, it's interesting. Um, there was a group of physicians across the United States which was actually uh, funded by the federal government this last summer who came up with that definition. And using what's called the GAD-2, the Generalized Anxi Anxiety Disorder 2-item measure, um, there was a recommendation that all PCPs, all primary care physicians, uh, all general practitioners at all visits screened for anxiety using this two-item measure. And what was determined was the cutoff would be any anxiety at all, any significant worry and any significant anxiety in the last two weeks. Without looking at the context, without looking at the person's baseline, without... So we have come to pathologize normal, healthy mood states. And mm. you're right. I, I do think there there's a line where people are like, no, that's very significant anxiety versus having any anxiety. And I think we've we've come, we have a very materialistic approach when it comes to um mental health and and especially youth, especially young individuals and and uh, teens and uh, and uh, and young adults um and children, we pathologize even the smallest levels of distress that they might experience. So, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I think some level of distress is going to happen to all people, but that's not what current thinking is in, mm. in the culture um, or in the, in the medical profession. And I think that's actually creating quite a, quite a, quite a lot of distress. And, and it seems uh, that your book, the focus of, of your book, uh, and probably your work at, at uh, all the work on anxiety you do is to depathologize. I mean, I'm, I'm going to read from the press release. Uh, it says, um, often those who suffer from anxiety either exhaust themselves trying to cure it or resign themselves to a lifetime of fear and worry. And you're proposing a different approach quote, instead of fighting their anxiety, what if people could turn it into a strength? Yes. Take over. Elaborate. Okay. You that. want me to explain that yeah. one? That's a fair question. You know, I think, again, when you take a spiritual approach to mental health, let's talk about depression for a minute, not to take the conversation too far off. You know, any level of sadness or losing enjoyment in your current activities for a week or more 
technically speaking, you're moving into meeting criteria for a major depressive episode, as opposed to having a normal fluctuation in mood, which might be even a form of spiritual searching. My dear colleague and mentor colleague, really, Dr. Lisa Miller at, at uh, Columbia University, I'm sure you know her, name, yeah. come across her. Um, I'd be happy to introduce her, in fact, uh, if, you, if you like. Um, she has said, uh, she gave grand rounds at her hospital a couple of years ago, and she stood up and said that many times depression is functional because people are saying, hey, my life is empty. I want to have more of a spiritual connection. I want to have a better connection with the people who I love. I'm feeling like, you know, I'm being sucked in to just making money and and spending it. And 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 my life is really not direction, directioned. It's not based on values. And people can fall into depression because of that, because they feel disconnected. And that depression can lead to spiritual growth if we see it in the right way. Well, anxiety, I think, has even more possibility for growth. Um, not only spiritual growth, but also our connection with others it can enhance our empathy. It can enhance our, uh, if we open up and be vulnerable with people and talk to them about how we feel, it can enhance our connection, it can increase our self-awareness, our self-compassion. It can lead us down many roads that are actually very healthy and adaptive and different than the lifestyle that many people have today. Your subtitle is Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Do you want to talk about those tools? I, I, it, the book also has three sections, and I found the structure of it very revealing in itself. So maybe you want to talk about... Uh, yeah, I think going through all nine of them would be kind of tough uh, yeah. you know, in, uh, in the time that we have. But I'm happy to talk about the three groups of those tools. So the first group of those tools relates to enhancing our relationship with ourselves. Often people who go through life and they're doing extremely well materially, their careers are wonderful. They're making loads of money. They're driving fancy cars. They don't have a care in the world. Those are the people in many cases I'm concerned about the most. Because? Because they're not aware of their emotions. And then if something goes off the rails, they will not be able to manage it. Uh -huh. And we saw this in the early days of COVID, in fact, that a lot of people who were flourishing and doing extraordinarily well all of a sudden had anxiety for the first time, as opposed to having recognized along the way, oh, wow, sometimes I have good days and sometimes I have bad days and there are these are my triggers and this is what sets me off and this is how I can manage it and having the basic toolkit to be able to manage the vicissitudes of life. And anxiety can teach us all of those tools. In many ways, it's a blessing that can make us more resilient and make us more aware of ourselves. But as long as we have those you know, specific um, I should say, as long as we heed the message of anxiety and have those tools in place to be able to use it, it doesn't have to throw us off our horse. So that's the first section of the book, our relationship with ourselves. The second is our relationship with others. Anxiety can greatly deepen our emotional intimacy and connection when we are willing to express it to others. Often people, when they feel anxious, it gets converted into anger. Mm. And uh, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, as opposed to, hey, what you're doing is actually making me anxious and I need you. You know, it's very hard to say I need you to someone, mm. but it's true. We do need people. We need probably tens, if not hundreds of people to function week to week, month to month. We need people to love us. We need people to care for us. We need to have compassion and we all need to have more of that connection. And leaning into anxiety can actually humble us and make us more appropriate. I shouldn't say appropriate, but more um, fitting is the word to mm -hmm. have those intimate connections. 
uh, it can prepare us. It can prepare the groundwork that has to be done in order to build edifices of, of, of real connection and intimacy with other people. Um, and then finally, spiritually, you know, you mentioned Abraham Maslow, Maslow beforehand, and he gets prominent mention in this last part of the book, along with Viktor Frankl and several others. Mm-hmm. Um, but with regards to Maslow, he spoke about self-actualization. Mm-hmm. I don't know a single person on earth who has self-actualized, who has not been through significant anxiety. Mm. Because if you have a dream and you want to bring out that dream in the world, you are going to face adversity. There is going to be challenge that needs to be faced in order to, to bring out that potential into the real world. And along those lines, getting used to anxiety Getting used to it and understanding that it can breed resilience is actually part of the pathway towards actualizing ourselves and achieving our spiritual potential in this world. Um, so that those are a couple of smatterings from the book um, across the uh, the three uh, three part structure. When I looked at the table of contents, um, what leaped out at me, probably because of my own orientation, is that. Each of the three sections has three parts. That's true. So yes. Nine chapters altogether is very uh, symmetrical in that way. But each of the three parts, one of the chapters has the word transcending or transcendence in it. Yes, that's correct. That caught my eye. Tell me why. Uh, and why the consistency there in, in each of those three sections and what, what you mean by it. Yeah, transcendence is a lofty term that I think is actually a lot more accessible than people think. And when it comes to transcending anxiety it, with regards to ourselves, you know, I was mentioning before, we you know, the more we can accept our anxiety and persevere through it, the stronger we can get. It's sort of like the gym. You know, if you go to the gym and you work out, let's say you're lifting weights, you build muscle in accordance with how much it burns. Well, emotional resilience also to some degree gets built the extent to which we can go through those that crucible, that, that challenge, those fires, those emotional fires. Now, obviously, just as you can strain a muscle by taking on too much physical weight, you can strain your emotional system by taking on too much emotional weight, and it has to be calibrated for your capacity. But it's not going to be fun. No one says going to the gym is going to be fun. And transcendence means looking beyond this simple experience, unpleasant experience of anxiety. You know, just because I'm calling the book Thriving with Anxiety doesn't mean I think it's fun. No one <laughs> likes to feel anxious. It's terrible. It, it's God awful, but that's okay. We can transcend it and actually build up our resilience, our emotional capacity, just like we build our aerobic capacity or our, our, our muscle capacity. So that's on that's one aspect of transcendence. You say it you indicate that um the usual treatments for anxiety somebody's feeling you know anxious uh, or especially if it persists and they say I need help that the usual treatments um can actually make things worse. Yes. Um and and I'd like you if to explain why you why you uh, feel that way, or what the what your research indicates about that, and also how uh, medications fit into that. 
Yeah, I think primarily that that does refer to medications. So, you know, I want to clarify, there are a lot of effective treatments for anxiety. Cognitive behavior therapy is something I'm very well, you know, trained in and have practiced for now two decades. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the approaches in there are effective, um, especially when they're framed in, uh, in, in, in a way that, that it helps people to move forward and to um, parlay their anxiety into positive ways in their lives. So I'll, I'll start by saying there are effective strategies. I'm not saying that there's, you know, what, I'm, what I've written is not at odds with all aspects, not in any way, of modern psychiatry or psychology. Um, with regards to pharmacology, with regards to medications, many prescribers misuse medications by saying, oh, you're feeling anxious, take this and you won't feel anxious anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, what invariably happens is that patient, if they listen, take the, they take the medication and eventually they come to have some sort of a breakthrough anxiety. And the reason is because they're human and we are all going to feel uncomfortable sometimes. But now they're taking a medication, they've been told that they're not gonna feel anxious, they're starting to have breakthrough anxiety. What's the next step? What are they going to think? Mm. I'm a failure, something's really wrong with me, I can't handle this. So now that small- Or I'm of, not taking enough of the drug. Or I have to take more or whatever it is. They go yeah. to their doctor, at best, at best, they go to their doctor and say, this isn't working. So the doctor says, great, let's take more. The next thing happens. Then the doctor adds another medication. Then they add a third one. I, I'm telling you, I've had, I don't know how many patients are on our current roster with more than three medications. Some, Many of them have five. I've had patients who had 20 different psychiatric medications who came to my, came to my wow. office. And it's very common. People just add and add and add. And I don't have a problem with using multiple medications, but the goal cannot be to get rid of your distress. The goal needs to be, let's get it into a reasonable mid-range so that you can learn skills to be able to manage it. To me, that's responsible pharmacological practice. But telling people, you know, selling them on the snake oil that you're going to get rid of all your distress, I have problems with that. I don't think it's been, I think it's actually led into the anxiety epidemic. Interesting. You, you say you use a three-step process for each level of, you know, section of the book. What are those three steps? The first is to recognize and identify the issue your anxiety is calling attention to. So maybe explain that and tell us what the other two are. Yeah. You know, in, in, in each of the steps, there's our, our recognition of what, how we are feeling simply becoming more in tune and more aware of our anxiety and not fighting against it. Well, that actually leads into the second one, which is, which is acceptance, you know, accepting our anxiety and not fighting against it is the, is the next piece. Once we have recognized how we feel, we're not avoiding it. And then we've accepted it in the second step, in the second step, there's a third step of being able to transcend it. And that means really parlaying it into positive ways in our life. Um, obviously, I'm speaking in broad generalities, and you know, each the book really is much more practical than this, and really takes people step by step with lots of case examples. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that is the overall structure. Coming back to the uh, connection between anxiety and spirituality, sure. um, you indicated before that uh, anxiety. Uh, can be a trigger to get people onto a spiritual life 
or to deepen their current spiritual life. And at the same time, um, it can be detrimental to one's spiritual life. Can Explain a little bit about how you see the relationship between anxiety and different levels of anxiety uh, and how uh, what a spiritual response is or how how can I put this? If anxiety can trigger a deepening of one's spiritual life, can it do the opposite as well? Can it be a deterrent? The, the short answer is yes. And then I think you probably want me to explain why, which I'm happy yes. to do. All right. So yes, there are different effects or whatever. It depends on how what people do with their anxiety. How we respond to our anxiety is far more important than whether we have anxiety in the first place. Mm. And really at the heart of my book is that we need to change our relationship with anxiety. So when we have it, or if we have it, we will not turn it into uh, uh, make matters worse. We will actually use it in a way to, to move us forward. And depending on how people do that, they can have, in this case, spiritual growth or potentially a spiritual decline. Um, I'll explain it with regards to spirituality now. So at the core of anxiety is uncertainty. When I don't know what's going to happen next, I'm likely to be anxious. Mm -hmm. Adding one more piece to that, when I can't tolerate knowing what's going to happen next, mm -hmm. I'm going to feel anxious. It's not only the uncertainty, it's actually my tolerance of that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Now, spirituality has dealt with the issue of uncertainty and uncontrollability <laughs> since the dawn of time. Okay, right. this is this is our you know this is our wheelhouse. If you're you know steeped in spiritual traditions, how can human beings live and plan and you know execute uh, whatever they want to do in this world while accepting that we're only human and there's only so much we can control? There's only so much we can know, you know. I'll share with you this morning uh, an anecdote. Um, so I, I was I was having a bit of anxiety this morning because I'm dealing with uh, a, sort of a serious uh, situation clinically that I have to deal with and, and some, some business stuff as well. And uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I don't know what's going to happen. And I definitely don't have control of it. And I found myself going down an anxious, getting into an anxious place about it. And then I, I sat in my car and I said, you know what? I give up. I'm not going to drive the car. I don't know what's best. I think I know, but at the end of the day, I don't have control over this. I don't have certainty about what really should be. It's not within my wheelhouse to really make the decision. I'll do my best to get through it, but at the end of the day, I give up. And that was really and I talk about this in the book, that was using anxiety to grow spiritually by leaning into it and accepting the limits of my control and the limits of my knowledge. Mm. Which can be terrifying for some it is people. Terrifying. And... It is terrifying. But that terror is actually, it's actually a good thing. And once we break through it and say, okay, I'm really, I'm there. Willing hands that can really move us forward spiritually and ironically reduce our anxiety. I've had a lot less anxiety the rest of the day because of that. <laughs> and 
there's a kind of leap of faith element in that and 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 what in some spiritual traditions would be th thought of as acts of uh surrender in in the positive sense of surrendering yep, to in a positive higher sense. power and yep. am i correct is that exactly it and this is not specific to my faith tradition this really cuts across all the major world religions yeah, and many yeah, other many yeah. minor traditions as well um, you know, uh, where even humanistic faith traditions, where there's a recognition of the limits of humanity. And I think in our Western world, one of the reasons we're so anxious is because we don't recognize the limits of yeah, our humanity, yeah. right? We're always trying to control, trying to understand, trying to manipulate, trying to, I don't mean in a negative way. I mean, we're just trying to, you know, have agency in this world. And we really value that agency as opposed to valuing the acceptance that, well, you know, maybe we're not supposed to have that agency all the time, and that might be a good and, thing. And it's not it's not uh, in the DNA of the human uh, no. animal to always have a certainty. There's a thing in, in some mystical traditions uh, that they usually translate as uh, unknowing or the, the virtues of not knowing and being able to accept not knowing. It's great. I love that. Um, you you also say I want to step back a bit and talk about the big picture because you you say that um, according to the data anxiety has risen by twenty five percent since twenty twenty so and and you know there's articles in newspapers and magazines over the last couple of years about what they you think of as an epidemic of anxiety, especially among young people. Yes. Um, to the extent that's true, um, how much is it a carryover from the pandemic, the data, and um, what other things, are, what's going on? Why is this happening in your, in your experience? Yeah. Great questions. Um, there are some aspects of the pandemic that have carried over, but I think it, the real question is why did the pandemic create such mm. incredible anxiety? And on the one hand, it's you know obvious. I guess we were all you know affected by it, but I actually don't think so. And and if you look at it around the world, the effects were not the same. There are certain cultures mm -hmm. where it actually wasn't that bad on the on mental health, the mental health concerns. And, and the reason why is because we didn't know what was going to happen. And for Americans, at least, at least in, in the Western culture more broadly, that's very upsetting that we couldn't control this and we couldn't know what was going to be, where things were going to go. Were the vaccines going to work? Were there going to be vaccines? How long would this go on for? You know, there was so many questions. And if if we can't, if we take a material view, we have to know, we have to control. But if we can let go and be more spiritually minded, I think it allows us that flexibility and that permission to not know um, and to recognize it's not necessarily our fault if we don't know. And at the end of the day, things are going to work out, you know, the way they're supposed to work out. Now that, that is a leap of faith to use your words from beforehand. Um, so, uh, I, I do think it relates to the pandemic, but it's more the culture that the pandemic interacted with. That's the problem. So what other factors have entered in if, if there's much more anxiety now than there was a few years ago, and if it's especially affecting, 
I mean, it's heartbreaking for me when I hear about uh, teenagers and stu people of student age having uh, serious anxiety on a chronic level and uh, yeah. suicidal ideation and all that um, at a time of life where there should be a certain carefree quality and uh, enjoyment. So what to what do you attribute it? And um, to what extent is, for example, the uh, breakdown of extended family and community have something to do with it? You know, I, I see all of it, what you mentioned, as coming from a need for control. Mm. When you need to be in control, you don't want to be around your family because they're going to do stuff that annoys you. <laughs> <laughs> and when you want to be in control, well... If things don't go your way, then something's a failure. You're a failure. Things, you know, we have these expectations in the West, which are completely unrealistic expectations of relationships, expectations of ourselves, and, you know, expectations of our emotional world. And we need a level set that, you know, those expectations are way out, out, uh, out of the realm of normal, out of the realm of healthy. And mm. to understand we're going to feel anxious, relationships are going to be messy, we're not always going to be successful, we're, there are vicissitudes in life. You know, these are basic uh, concepts that any faith tradition will teach you. And I've definitely woven them with uh, copious, copious uh, doses into throughout the book. You also say that we're uh, a part, one of the reasons is an obsession with safety and security. Yes, uh, very much so. How does that figure in? Well, you know, from a material standpoint, we have to not only be safe, but guarantee our safety and know that everything's going to be okay. And in reality, you know, our best efforts are no guarantee at all. And if we're being sober, if we're being honest, uh, we'll be sober enough to recognize that, you know, we can do our best. Yes, and we should. Absolutely. I don't deny that. But there is a letting go that all humans have to do at some point if we want to live emotionally healthy lives. To what extent, if any, are factors that we don't normally think of in this context possibly contributing? I think of, for example, uh, our diets, the amount of sugar and caffeine and other stuff we consume, um, the drugs people take, drinking, jurists. Um, Clinical psychologists, you know, the, there's a link between mental states and physi physiologic states. So is, is any of that factoring in? Yeah, metabolics, you know, metabolic psychiatry is an up and coming field. I have uh, uh -huh. some colleagues who are actually doing some very cutting edge research in this area. Um, I think it's still early days to say that all aspects of diet really have um, such a massive impact, with the exception of uh, what you mentioned, caffeine, for sure. Um, other factors, though, seem to have a greater impact, like our sleep, mm. because when you sleep, you let go and you're like, I'm not in control for the next seven or eight <laughs> hours. You know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, so I think there's a spiritual message there. Exercise, because it increases our pain tolerance and our pain threshold and our ability to go through difficulty in order to build something, which is also, I believe, a spiritual reserve. So um, th those to me, from what I've seen in the data, seem to have more of an effect um than than metabolics but uh there are certain things that are are certainly uh, important there as well
There's a thing in, in spiritual circles you often run into even, you know, people who've been on a path for a long time, whether they're in a faith, a mainstream faith tradition or they're uh, among the nuns in the spiritual but not religious, mm -hmm. where there's a spiritual crisis of some kind or another, yep. uh, what in some circles has been called dark night of the soul. And, yes. and that can feel like the same thing as it's a form of anxiety, I would think. Do you run into that in, in the clinical setting? And how do you deal with it as distinct from uh, just a, a more typical uh, bout of anxiety or period of anxiety where people are, are in a crisis of faith? It's a good question. Um, you know, spiritual struggles can certainly have an impact on, on anxiety. And, um, I think in many cases, uh, when people resolve those struggles, they can actually come out stronger, not only in their emotional fortitude, but also in their spiritual mm -hmm. connection. Um, the exact pathway though, obviously depends on a number of different factors, community resources, family resources that you mentioned before. Um, spiritual resources um, and uh, time, finances, the ability to access these. You know, these are great blessings that have a massive impact on our lives. So, do you have you run into in a clinical setting people uh, with the kind of crisis of faith that's a, like a, a big spiritual disillusionment? Um, discovering the the uh, spiritual leader. Uh, misbehaves, yes. had uh, clandestine sexual affairs or, right, or was abusive right. or uh, mismanaged money, mis misappropriated money, or just a, you know, I can't believe this stuff anymore now that I've learned such and such. Uh, and there's an emptiness spiritually that uh, they seek help from a clinician. Does that happen? Is that fairly common these are usually more in the realm of chaplaincy and psych mm. you know psychiatric chaplaincy in my in my uh department and uh you know these are these are less commonly uh presented to uh non-chaplain clinicians such as myself mm. um, because they really more directly center around spiritual struggles uh in that way um, beyond the reflective listening, like I mentioned before, which is extremely important just to get the patient to talk about it. Hmm. So often I'll speak to the patient, say just, wow, that's, this is important. Have you spoken to anyone about this? No, almost always no. And then, you know, refer them to the chaplain. Um, that that's, hmm. that's a, that's a good double team approach. Interesting. Um, what about the aspect of spiritual practices? How does that fit into your approach to anxiety and the intersection with spirituality? Sure. So I speak about prayer in the book mm -hmm. and prayer as a, for example, request prayer, like asking, you know, one's uh, uh, spirituality for assistance as a way of actually not trying to manipulate the heavens, <laughs> rather as a way of accepting that there's a limit on human control. Mm. And that a greater, larger force is shepherding the world towards some sort of goal. And learning to accept that and relinquishing control through the spiritual practice, the religious practice of prayer, 
um, can be a great aid to anxiety because it really encourages us to grapple with and struggle with, in a good way, the limits of our control and our and our humanity, which is pretty powerful. In the short time we have left, um, for listeners who experience anxiety, um, what are the takeaways you'd like them to have other than go read Thriving with Anxiety, <laughs> the, the usual book promotion answer? But um, um, also, how to distinguish when what they're experiencing can be, you know, something they can manage with a little help and when to seek um, professional help. I mean, there are degrees of anxiety, obviously. And yes, great question. And I talk about this in the preface of the book, that there are really four mm -hmm. groups or people, types of people, I should say, who have anxiety. There are people who are flourishing, people who are doing extremely well, and even they have some anxiety from time to time, although, like I mentioned before, often feel intoxicated by success and don't really focus on that to their to often to their detriment. So that's group one. Group two are people who are languishing. They don't need clinical help per se, but they are struggling in some way with a reasonable amount of significant anxiety. That I think is in some ways the best group of people because they are grappling and dealing with their anxiety, hopefully moving towards emotional, uh, greater emotional resiliency and greater connection without it sort of getting the better of them, so to speak. And then there's the latter two groups, which are people who have distress and then severe distress. Mm. And the, the difference between those is that distress is that people can function day to day, but they still need professional supports. And severe distress is when people cannot function. Mm. So they might need to go to a hospital setting or a residential setting or something like that. Across the board, for all four types of people, I think the first and most important message is that we understand that anxiety is a normal human state, something that we all go through in some degree, and not to judge ourselves or get upset or to catastrophize when we start to feel that anxiety, and instead to learn in a positive way how to use that in our lives. Now, to what extent we need supports to do that and which are the specific tools and how to go about that? Well, you know, that that's that's on an individual basis, but certainly, certainly simply the act of knowing simply the framing of knowing that our anxiety is normal and that we can use it in a positive way, I think there's nothing more important. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Rasmaran, for being with us. Listeners, uh, you can find out more about him at dhrosmarin.com. Uh, get a copy of Thriving with Anxiety, the nine tools to make your anxiety work for you. And thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning in. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast. Get on my mailing list. Go to my website. Check out what I'm doing and um, stay in touch. We'll see you next time. Thanks again, David Rosmarin. Thank you. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa one to get that information. 
I answer audience questions and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts.